Hello, and welcome back to the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. My name is Adam, your host. This week, I am delighted to be chatting to Mike Cation. Mike is a legend of the tennis commentary world and has worked for the last around seven years on the USTA Pro Circuit. And more recently, he's also worked at the Australian Open and the US Open. In the first half of the episode, we talk about how Mike got into this world of tennis broadcasting what he loves about the job and about tennis, some of his best memories and weirdest memories from his time on tour and more. And in the second half of the episode, we talk about Mike's experiences and memories of some of the best Irish players of recent years, including McGee, O'Hare, Kluski and Sam Barry. This is a great chance to get a new, fresh perspective on these great players from someone who has a, a unique viewpoint. On, on their careers, having having worked on their matches and got to, to be around them at, at these events. I really enjoyed talking to Mike and getting this this uh, this new insight. Without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Mike Cation. Here we go. Start, Mike. Um, a big thanks for joining me. But um, I just want to start by asking you this. Um, I, I was listening at the end of 2020. I was listening to the ATP Tennis Radio uh, podcast. Yeah. Okay, they had an episode where they were Looking back at the predictions made by all of the the commentators who work, you're nodding your head now. Yeah. Who, who work for them, um, you know, at the start of the year, um, yeah. reviewing how those, those predictions went, and I was listening through it. And um, <sighs> at, at the end, um, there were there were two people tied in the lead yeah. on, on ten points. Uh-huh. Um, one was yourself, and yeah. one was was um, Arvin Palmer. Uh, yeah. Arvin Palmer. Yeah. Um, and the, the 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 win is given by default due to the the defending champion rule to to Arvin Palmer. Yeah. So I wanted to, to get your take on that. Um, um, I was outraged. But... Yeah, no, Adam, I appreciate you you starting with this because, uh, frankly, I haven't had a chance to speak about this uh, in public uh, since that happened. Uh, I think it's a travesty. Um, it is an absolute shocker that the the decision is to go to the defending champion instead of the the new upstart in his first opportunity to, to even take a crack at this. Um I, I think it's an outrage, uh, you know, frankly, and obviously we're having a lot of difficulties politically here in, in the States, but I, I found myself chanting, stop the steal. Um, I felt like it was stolen from me. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I thought about not even competing this year uh, in the ATP tennis radio uh, competition, but I feel I got to at least make do and see if I can, uh, you know, go that, that one step further this year. But yeah, I, I, I still, it, it hurts because I would have liked to have a, a trophy. Uh, I don't have a lot of trophies, uh, so yeah, it 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 hurt, but um, it's a bad memory for me. Yes, yeah. Well, I guess if you can if you can go one further this year, you'll be yeah. putting it over us. Yeah, no, I, yes. I I spend some extra time on the predictions here this this year, so uh, yeah, it's, we'll we'll see, we'll see. Good stuff, good stuff. And um, now, just to get a bit more serious, um, and, and I've been obviously following challengers for for a few years, watching in particular um, some of the Irish guys. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago um, but just you know you've always been there especially the, obviously the usda the, the american ones um just wanted to ask how, how did that start for you to, to, to work in, in in challenger events yeah it's it's a fun story um i i was a player in in illinois in the in this in the states um you know back when i was in the junior level and i was um one of the people who where i played in champaign illinois one of the player people who coached me was craig tiley who's in the news a lot right now is the Australian yeah. Open uh, tournament director and uh, Tennis Australia CEO, but he was coaching at the University of Illinois. Um, and so he was also on the on the side, he was giving lessons. Um, and I was one of those kids as a 15, 16, 17 year old taking lessons um, from Craig Tiley. Uh, I then went to, I blew out my shoulder um, playing uh, I guess it would have been what what is my senior year of, of high school here in the States and blew out my shoulder, just chose not to play anymore instead of going to a small college to continue my career. Um, but then once I got a job in Champaign, Illinois, directly out of college, it was in radio. Um, one of the first people I actually interviewed was Craig Tiley. I didn't think he would remember who I was, but he did remember who I was Um and as a result, he actually asked me to be the public address announcer, which is basically the person who announces the lineups for the collegiate team at the University of Illinois. Um, so that would have been in 1999, 2000. Um, the next year, he asked me if I would be interested in being the press aide, the um, public relations person for his challenger. 
which was 2001. So that was the first time I got involved in professional tennis in, in that regard was the 2001 Challenger in Champaign. It was, uh, the final was Robbie Ginepri and Ivo Karlovich. Um, so, I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's a pretty good final. Um, I mean, one of those guys still competing on the tour. Um, <laughs> but so, so that was the first time I got involved for several years was, I think I did eight years as the press aide uh, for that challenger while also working in radio in Champaign. Um, and then I, I was still involved with the University of Illinois team. Craig obviously left for Tennis Australia, um, but I was involved with the University of Illinois team. And then one year, uh, the university hosted the NCAA, uh, the collegiate championships here in the States. And I was watching, I was doing the public address announcing, and a, a guy who I'd known through the challenger came up to me and he said, hey, you're, you're broadcasting too, I, I, I know, but would you have any interest in broadcasting some tennis tournaments? Yeah, uh, sure. okay. He said, well, they're looking for this, a commentator for the challengers here in the States. And, uh, you know, I know you're, you're interested. Would, I'll just forward your name. So that was May 2013. Um, I got on a couple phone calls. And then July of 2013, I was at Winnetka in northern Illinois, right by Chicago, and broadcasting a challenger um, without having any actual tennis play-by-play -by -play experience. And so that was yeah seven and a half years ago, and um, you know I've not done a couple of challengers here in the last year, but uh, it's it's been a it's been a wild ride ever since. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's been a, honestly, Adam. Um, people often ask me if you know how to get involved in tennis media. I, I, like I just I, I got lucky, right? Like just randomly running into a guy at the NCAA championships because I'd been involved in some challengers as a press aide and he knew I was in broadcast. I got lucky. And that's the thing is it's, it's one of those things that to really get involved with tennis media, you have to do two things. You have to get a little lucky and you have to work your butt off. And, and so I, I, I think I've been able to do both of those and I'm just really lucky to be where I am. Yeah. No, just on the topic of, of working your butt off. Yeah. Um, I know that like at these events you'll have, you know, it's just you there. There's yeah. not like you have co-commentators. You know, you, you'll have have crazy long days. So how, how do you get through days where you could be doing seven hour or you could be doing seven matches in a day? And you're, yeah, um, how, how do you get through those? Coffee is number one. Um, I've developed a good relationship with a lot of of players. I, and you know, we'll talk about James McGee, but James has been a guy who's brought me coffee. David O'Hare is a guy who's brought me coffee in the midst of those days. Um, I would. You know, and I've said this before, so I don't feel bad saying it, but there, are, if you're in the midst of a boring match and it's match number four, eh, maybe I'm not talking every single point at that point, you know, and I kind of kind of drift off so that I give my brain a little bit of a rest. But um, it, they're hard days. Um, you, you have to love what you're doing. Um, there, there's no doubt about that. But it's it's I'm having a great time. And I also think about the fact that maybe I'm working 17 or 18 weeks a year and that's it. I can I can, quote unquote, suffer. For, for a few days, you know, to because it, it, I'm able to spend a lot of time with my daughter when I'm back home. So it's it's fine. I, I enjoy what I do. So those long days are hard, but they're also something that I truly love and I am truly passionate about, specifically the sport at that level. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll complain every once in a while about being pretty tired, but it, it's really because of how much I love the sport of tennis. Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, on, I guess, challengers, for, yeah. like, for people that aren't so familiar with, with that level of tennis, they might just, you know, see the slams and that's all they really know. I guess just, just sell that to them. I'm like, well, what, what, what's so great about challenger? Tennis? Yeah, uh, what, what I've always said, you know, it's, it's easy to say that these are players who are ranked like 100 to 300 in the world, right? That's kind of just the easy way of, of who it is. It's, it's the players who tend to be the first and second, third round opponents for those guys and, and, and gals that you know, right? So you, you see Roger Federer beat Marcus Willis at, at Wimbledon a couple of years ago. And of course, I've had plen, uh, plenty of time with Marcus Willis, Noah Rubin, who I do a podcast with. He lost to Federer a couple of years ago at the Australian Open second round. What makes it so, um, I, I guess why I'm so passionate about it is because it is so desperate. Um, you know, the money levels, the prize money levels have not changed at the challenger level for so many years. These players are desperate to get the points to escape and really be at that next level. So to me, seeing, you know, some of these players compete for seven points, 15 points when you get to the quarterfinal to the semifinal level, it means so much 
you know, it's even more so than I think at the ATP 250s because it is just kind of that, am I going to be able to get into the next Grand Slam? Am I going to be able to sneak into the last, you know, the, the last qualifying spot at the Australian Open here in Champaign, Illinois in the middle of November and it's snowing? It's so desperate, right? Um, and, and so to me, those little competitions, those little uh, stories within the, you know, the bigger story is what makes it so passionate for me. On top of it, I, I also really love it because of the interaction. Um, I, and I don't know, Adam, if you've ever been to a challenger, um, but the ability to actually interact with the players, you know, as you're walking to the bathroom, you might be suddenly in the bathroom with James McGee and there. You're just like, holy crap, you know, I'm right next to this guy who I just watched competing for the last two hours. This is unbelievable. And, and I don't think enough fans, at least here in the States, I think it's probably more so in Europe, but I don't think enough fans here in the States really take advantage of how, uh, uh how good the level is at challenger tennis. I mean, in any other sport, you talk about a guy who's 150th in the world, you know, in baseball, basketball, football here in the States, that's high-level multimillionaire. Of course, in tennis, it's not, and that's a completely different discussion. But these guys are so incredibly good, and I, I just am so lucky to be that close to them on a regular basis. Absolutely, yeah. I guess it is just that it means so much more than it yes. would at slightly higher level it's just it is, it's everything yeah i mean, and and to the point you know as, as i know you want to talk about some of the irish players i mean when when james mcgee won his his title in carry um a few years ago i i know what what i think is going to be the lasting image for a lot of people with james mcgee is understandably you know when he collapsed after qualifying for the u.s open and what that long journey had meant to him right but for me the lasting memory is actually going to be winning that title in carry um because I think he knew that that was kind of where his level was maxing out, right? Like he wasn't, I think he had hit that point in his career then that he knew he wasn't going to be a top 50 player. But his journey had gotten to that point where he knew he was one of the best players at the challenger level and he could be there consistently. And so when he finally won one, right, it was just this overwhelming outpour of emotions because that was kind of it, right? Like he'd been working so hard in this goal for six, seven years to get there and have that opportunity to hoist a trophy against a Ernesto Escobedo who was heartbroken because he had opportunities and felt like he choked it. it he just, he knew what it meant, uh, you know, and how long that journey had, uh, had taken. Um, so those are the moments that really stand out to me. Just that, that ability to say, I made it, I did it. I captured something and I beat some of the best in the world. And so I, I think for, for me, that's the memory that's going to always stand out with James McGee. Absolutely. And I do, I do want to come on to a couple more stories like that of, of some of the Irish guys in, yeah. in, a, in a couple of minutes, but, um, just, just before we do, um, just on, on that commentating at, at, at challenger tennis, yeah. what, what are a couple of the, the craziest moments that you've, you've witnessed? I'm sure you've, there's, been, there's a few that you you'd be able to say, yeah. what are a couple of the, the most, most crazy moments that you've, you've ever seen? Um, I, I, you know, the ones that obviously stand out are the, the sex noises in Sarasota with Francis Tiafo and, and Mitchell Kruger. That one, um, I, I, you know, when, when my grandmother asks me about that, my 90 year old grandmother asks me about this, these sex noises in the middle of my tennis match, that was, that's something I'm never going to be able to shake out of my head. Uh, specifically my grandmother asking me about sex noises. That's, Adam, that is something nobody should ever have to hear ever really come out of their grandmother's mouth. Um, that's the one that's obviously going to stand out um, and, and be what I what I think I'm remembered for. Um, we, we have had obviously Marcus Willis, the bond that I've had with Marcus Willis because he was eating a, a Snickers bar and an RC Cola right after a tennis match. That one is going to stand out. Um, like some of the 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 the, the ones that I, I think are funny for me, like we had in Kerry a couple of years ago. Last year, 2019, I think. Yes, 2019, we had uh, a poisonous snake that was crawling onto the court. And so I had to, for Tennis Channel, mind you, I was on Tennis Channel at the time, and I'm narrating them trying to capture a snake um, because they couldn't play because it was a poisonous flipping snake. And, you know, you have to clear out the, the stands because if anybody gets bit by a snake, you know, that. so you've got that. Uh, I mean, for me, I think it's going to be a lot more of the stories um, – kind of off the court, uh, some of which I can tell you, some of which I can't, uh, <laughs> you know, I, of, of moments 
I, I think what 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 I'll always remember is I can't I, I don't want to say the player, but I will I will say after Sarasota in Sarasota a couple of years ago, I had a player who was who came to my tent crying. Um, he was in a moment of of kind of despair because something had happened with a, a, a girlfriend. But this this player came to me because he knew I'd gone through a divorce a couple of years ago and just wanted to talk about what it was like to kind of recover from that. And I have countless stories that are actually like that because I have this incredible bond with these players. Um, so the commentary stuff, you know, I, a, a lot of those ones, people will come up to me with all these stories of, I remember when this happened, you know, Joe Salisbury did this, you know, jumping thing where he hit the, the top of the roof in Dallas a couple of years ago. He's playing with freaking Leander Pays and, and, you know, and I, they'll have all these incredible memories for me. It's that bond that I have with that player in Sarasota, the, the rain delays that I had in little rock a couple of years ago, which made Noah Rubin and I do a podcast. And I spent hours with Martin Redlicky and, um, that, that's the thing. I I've got plenty of little stories of, of funny things that have happened on, on comms. Um, but it's been the stuff off, off the microphone, that's been way more funny. Like the time we saw somebody poop in a laundromat in Sarasota, Florida. That was probably the highest level you could get, but but we saw it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just on that, on, on those bonds, I guess you make with mm -hmm. people, I guess someone that you have got a um, relationship with through this is, is now Ruben, who you now yeah. have the podcast with. Um, just tell me a little bit about how, how you got to know him and, and what he does. Because I mean, your, your relationship on the, on the podcast is hilarious to listen to, but uh, yeah, what's your relationship with... <laughs> He's a he's an interesting young man. In fact, actually, before I was uh, before I hopped on the podcast with you, we were texting back and forth. Um, Noah is a fifty year old man trapped in a twenty four year old body. Um, he he greets everybody as sir. He and he means it. That's that's a level of respect that his parents have taught him. Um, but he is he's one of those guys who he fits in very well with his peers. In, um, but he, but he is he's an older guy. Um, trapped in that body. Um, but, but yeah, Noah and I, when he first won his title back in Charlottesville, 2015, uh, he just, he came up and talked to me because he was very interested in the details of what, how he would get the wild card to the Australian open or if he would. And, and we just started kind of having these conversations and he would always come up to me and shake my hand, which again is very weird. Um, uh, but he would always shake my hand whenever we ran into each other. He happened to be the, the first person I ran into in my first Australian open. I like walk into the the, the the main building at the Australian Open and there's no Ruben is just like all these strange coincidences. Um, and then he's, you know, he and I talked as he was starting to do his behind the racket um, stuff for, for Instagram. Um, and we just kind of had this moment where he knew that I was already doing a podcast at the time, which is kind of along the same, um, I don't know, same, same form. We were both trying to kind of highlight the behind the scenes, if you will, uh, of these players at this level. And uh, he wanted to kind of do it in a podcast form. So we started doing what is now the Behind the Racket pod. Um, but we, our, our bond over the last year since, since COVID has actually been much, much stronger. Um, he came out to Tulsa for um, a week at one point to Tulsa's where I live. I should say that, but he came out to Tulsa. Somebody brought him out to Tulsa to kind of teach lessons at the time. Um, he spent time with my daughter, my daughter who is six loves him, has no interest in tennis whatsoever, but wants to be a professional ball kid for Noah Rubin and travel with Noah to all these tournaments. Um, he is, he's is a special young man. He's a divisive young man. Um, but he's also a guy who cares very much about the sport. Uh, regardless of what you might think about some of his ideas, he cares very much about trying to make life better for players. Um, and I just, I respect the hell out of him. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that he's a friend of mine. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's, it's a great podcast you do. And it definitely, you know, highlights those, those issues and it does, it, it's really good to, to listen to. Thanks. Um, I'd, I'd like to get back to interviewing some more players about things that don't involve COVID or, you know, things like that. <laughs> for sure. And then just something else I want to touch on is, is as well as, as all the work you've done um, in, in the, the USTA, the, in, in the challenges, you have also got, got to work at, at some, of the, some of the slams. Yeah. And you yourself and I know. So how, how did, that, did that come about? And like, how was that compared? What, what are the similarities and the differences working at those events? Um, I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this. Um, I, I think the similarities are it's, 
it, this is something that Courtney Nguyen, who I think most people who are on tennis Twitter know, she works for the WTA, does the WTA Insider. Um, I was freaking out the first day I did a match at the Australian Open because I don't have the same depth of knowledge about the women's game um, that I necessarily do about the men's game as I've seen so many of those players come up on the men's side. And I went to Courtney and I was talking, you know, I needed some, I don't know, some color so that I would know about some of the players that were involved. And, and I was freaking out and she could see I was nervous. And she said to me, Mike, you know, you've got four, four minutes right before the broadcast to talk, but then, then it's just tennis. It's just tennis and you know tennis. And that's the thing, when, I, when it comes to the similarities, I mean, yes, Adam, and I'm sure you can say, you know what the difference in terms of level is from a challenger match, you know, an average challenger match to an average Grand Slam match, right? It's the consistency. It's maybe the, you know, obviously the prize money that's involved, um, the consistent depth. You can, you can point out the differences, what, you know, differences in tennis. So I, I don't need to tell you that, right? It's, it's the it's the grandiosity of it. I mean, it's it's how big it is. That's it. Tennis is tennis. When you get between those lines, tennis is tennis. Anybody who knows the sport can tell you what's happening on that tennis court, right? Um, I, I think at a Grand Slam level, you are expected, in terms of the broadcast side, you're expected to know more about the players in terms of style. Um, I think you you obviously get to work with somebody who's an expert at the game, um, I actually find it much easier to commentate at a Grand Slam level. You are doing maybe one or two matches per day. You have an expert by your side. You get to kind of bounce things off. You have a little bit more fun. You're in a air-conditioned broadcast booth. For me, working at the Grand Slams is a flipping breeze. It is the best thing in the world. It's like vacation for me. Um, but ultimately, it's the experience of it. it, it and that's it. Because tennis is tennis. You just have to make sure you put in the time, put in the work to make sure you're super prepared. And those broadcasters that are super prepared, you hear it when you're, when you're listening. And Adam, I'm sure you have some broadcasters who you love, some broadcasters who you're just like, how the hell does he not know who Paolo Lorenzi is, right? So it's, it's one of those things. I, I, I just think that the biggest thing is really just interacting and broadcasting with that massive of a crowd is really the only difference for me in terms of the broadcast side, the actual broadcast side. Other than that, it's tennis is tennis. Yeah, absolutely. For, for you, what, what's the favorite slam you've, you've got to work at? I've only done two, um, AO and, and um, the U.S. Open. I, I, with all due respect to the U.S. Open, it's the Australian Open is special. Um, they, they call it the happy slam. It really has been the happy slam. I've been lucky enough... Um, the, the broadcast setup, they actually have e individual booths at each of the stadium courts, uh, where this, the U.S. Open is a little bit different. Um, but I have a favorite court um, at, at the Australian Open, uh, the court three, which is where they do the kind of the stadium court for, for qualifying, which I've been lucky enough to do the last couple of years. And it's just it's it's my it's my favorite i love going there every year i think part of it is the fact that you're in a different country on the other side of the world that there's that the coffee is incredible in melbourne i have some very close friends in melbourne um so so australian open is just really special for me it was also the first one that i did the first grand slam that i did so i think that one will always be special i'm hopeful that at some point in the future i get to do the french in wimbledon and then i'll create some special memories there um but yeah be, i i think it's just I really do think it's just the fact that it's it's Australia. It's you know, it's it's a day and a half ahead or whatever, you know, and you just you feel something special when you're down there. Yeah, no, I, I've heard good things, obviously, from people, and it's definitely one that's you know, someday I'd I'd love to get to to go down there and and, and experience this. People always ask me which one to go to. Um, I, I've been, I haven't, I still haven't been to the French. I've been to Wimbledon a couple of times on my own, and the history and how unique that is, right? That's that's something special. That's incredible. Um, yeah. But being in Melbourne, it's such a different vibe. It it really feels different than the U.S. Open. Like, the U.S. Open to me feels businesslike. It really feels like this is, this is work. And I don't mean that in a negative sense in any way, but that feels like it's like, okay, this is the last chance to make an impact in, in this calendar year at a Grand Slam. Whereas... Uh, the Australian Open, it's the beginning of the year, beginning of the season. Everybody's like, all right, fresh attitude. You know, I've been working with a new coach, strength and conditioning. I feel great. Everybody's healthy. 
Um, and there's something different about it. And the people in Melbourne are so different as well. It's, uh, it is. It's really, really special. And so I always tell people, go to Melbourne. It's going to be one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences because of how expensive it is. Just go for two and a half weeks, have a great time, spend a couple of days at the tennis, and just enjoy. Absolutely. I, I, do, I do want to ask you, I guess, about, about the future, because I know that over the last year, you know, you had very little work. There hasn't been much tennis in, in the U.S., um, challenger-wise or, or futures-wise. Yeah. Um, what, what do you see the, the next year, the next while looking like, like the long-term, I guess, effect of, of COVID on, on the sport? I have real concerns. Um, I think you have to about uh, uh, challenger and futures-level tennis. Um, you know, the ATP and WTA understandably made the slams their number one priority, um, tour level stuff, their number two priority. There hasn't really been that focus yet on how we make sure the funding um, and the money is there at those lower levels. And I think that's the real concern that I have, Adam. Um, I can't speak as well to, to what it's like in Europe right now. I can speak to here in the States where, um, you know, so many small businesses have been impacted, obviously, financially um, by, by what's happened with covid and what has made Challengers special and what has made Challengers unique is it's, you know, you, you get all these major companies who are involved at the slam level and tour level, right? Because the sponsorships make, you know, you're on television at a higher level, right? So you can, a sponsorship of a tournament makes sense because you're going to get a lot of broadcast mentions, whatever. Sponsorship at the Challenger level is often done by smaller businesses. Those have been the, the businesses that have been impacted, I think, the most, especially here in the States. Are they going to be willing right now to, to give five or $10,000 to tournaments to try and help them along? Um, you know, the USTA, it's been well documented about their finances. I'm sure it's the same for a lot of other um, federations throughout the world. Uh, uh, they just don't have the same money because of COVID as well. Um, the U.S. especially impacted by the, the lack of revenue from the U.S. Open with fans not being able to come this past year. Um, you know, I, I think we haven't seen that trickle down of finances from the ATP and WTA to help smaller tournaments. Um, so I I don't know. Um, I, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I, I think there at some point I'd love to see a little bit more of a give back to tournaments so that um, we see that there's a, a value placed by the tours on Challenger and Futures level. I mentioned at the outset that you know, fund, uh, prize money has not changed for players at the challenger level in, in however many years. That's not going to happen anytime soon. That prize money is not going to go up for challenger level players anytime soon either because of this. Um, I, can, I can tell you that I, I know that uh, so many different uh, people here in the U.S. are working to try and make sure that there are challengers. I've been able to look at a, a, a calendar for the rest of the year here in the States and I think what the USTA is doing is truly remarkable, kind of doing a lot of patchwork stuff to get different tournaments, find the communities where there is that, that huge community support for challengers for futures on both the men's and women's side. And they are working so hard to put those tournaments in those communities. But yeah, I, I think we're at a, a, a point where we really could use an influx of cash from a higher level, the ATP, the WTA, towards this challenger and futures level so that there's a little bit more impact over 2021 and 2022 so that we can start kind of getting those tournaments back on their feet. Because I think that's a real, real danger that we're going to lose a, a good amount of tournaments. Yeah, no, I mean, I really hope that when we look at it in maybe five years time, that it, you know, it, it, it looks hopefully similar to what it did before this and it, it doesn't have that, you know, long-term really really negative effect yeah i just i i wish i knew um and that's that's the thing i don't i don't think anybody has a really good idea of what's going to happen at this challenger level right now except for the fact that it's going to take something really special to make a lot of these tournaments i've talked to a lot of tournament directors here in the states who are just they're very concerned about what they're going to be able to do long term um yeah after you know not being able to put on a tournament for a year or two there are some tournaments that are going to be off the books for two years because of covid can they come back i don't really know so um i, I just want to go on and to, to touch on on maybe on, on, on a few of the the irish players that you've you've come into contact with um happy to and you, you mentioned mcgee um, yeah. earlier in his his title but do you remember the first time that you you came across mcgee um the first 
I, I don't think I do remember. No, I, I remember it wasn't the first time. I, I think the first memory I have of James McGee, I wanna, I'm, I'm pulling up his tennis abstract here so I make sure I get you the exact year because I, I remember a match, a specific match with, um, God, he played him a lot of times, with Austin Krychek. It was in Tiburon. God, where was it? Uh, 24, would have been 2013? Yes, 2013. So this was uh, four, yeah, four, fourth month on the job for me. So I was, I was relatively new, but it was Austin Krychek and James McGee, October of 2013. And I have to tell you, and I've said it to both of them, actually, it was the worst tennis match I've ever seen. It was horrendous. Both Austin, who's now gone on to a very successful doubles career, and, and James couldn't find the court. It was like, you know, serve, return, miss. Serve, return, back in play, miss. No winners at all. And I just found myself sitting there like, what the hell are we doing right now? But but what what stuck out for me in that match, and I again, I remember it, right? It was terrible, but I remember it was how hard both of these guys were competing. They both were terrible that day, but they were working their ass off. Um, and so that's the one that kind of sticks out for me with James, who was ranked 240 uh, at the time. And I think it was actually this, yeah, the second tournament where I, I'd interacted with him the week before in Sacramento was the first time. Um, and he, you could tell he was just this incredibly hard worker. He wasn't naturally gifted. He didn't have the height to have the big serve. He didn't have any overwhelming weapon, but he was working his ass off. And so that that match really sticks out for me because of the fact it was this guy who was going to try to find a way to win no matter what. He lost that match because Austin was able to serve better and get a few more free points along the way. But he was doing everything he could on a day where no shot was working. And I think that's really, Adam, as somebody who's followed his career very, very closely as well, I think that's ultimately what will be, you know, long, long term, the kind of how you remember James McGee. This was a guy who was willing to sacrifice everything he had that day to win a tennis match. He wasn't gifted with like I said, the serve. He didn't have the most powerful forehand or backhand. He wasn't talented at the net, but he was so intelligent. He worked incredibly hard. He put in time off the court. He was one of the most um, most requested players for some of the you know bigger names because of the fact that they knew he would give them a great practice every single time. And so that's where I, I think about that match in Tiburon a lot. Because I just remember how hard he worked when he sucked. He sucked. So many players would have been like, screw this, I'm done, it's two and one today. He just kept competing and believing that he was going to find a way. And that's, that's it, it ultimately is like, again, the second week that he was on the same tour as me. And that's what I remember about James McGee and that first time interacting with him. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what really came across because I was watching um, recently a bit of the coverage of 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 his his win in in Kerry that yeah. week. He went all the way, um, and what really kind of came across was like how you know everyone was kind of behind him. Like you know, like yes. the crowd obviously were supporting him. Like everyone seemed happy for him. You know, he obviously yep. really came across that way, and you know, he was everyone was on his team. So since in the last two years, um, worldwide challengers have required the, the ATP has required that challengers provide hotel housing. Okay, so that that was a, kind of a big thing to try and help lessen the the financial impact on challenger level players. Before that, here in the states, most of the tournaments offered um, housing with families. Um, okay. in, in, at so you would go to whatever city and you would contact the tournament director and say, can I please have housing? James was huge on that. He never went to a hotel because he knew that if he had housing, two things. Number one, he'd probably also have some really good meals. And number two, he'd have the ability to interact with human beings, really good people who cared very much about tennis. And he was special when it came to the housing. He had fans in every single city. There are a lot of Americans who hated, hated James McGee because there were always more people cheering for James McGee than the American tennis player in the States. 
That was universal. They couldn't understand why James would always have these fans. And it's because he might not stay with the same family every single year. He just wanted to interact with people. He wanted to make these connections. And so as a result, you'd go to Tallahassee where he had really great housing and he would do all like the pro-ams and, and, and everything like that. He just kept making connections. He knew it was, a you know, this this journey was not just about do I become top 50? It's about how do I make all these connections? That's what will help me be successful later in my life. So yeah, you speak to, to Carrie, and that was still a relatively new tournament, but he had made an impact in the community already. I mean, that week he came through qualifying. He beat, in qualifying, interestingly, he beat Dominic Kupfer, who's now a, a top 100 regular. That was a second round of qualifying, but it, it, it was remarkable how you would go to every single city on the U.S. tour, and he spent a lot of time here in the States, he would have a, a, a good pocket of fans everywhere. And of course, the, the Irish flag wristbands that he wore, I, I know that that meant a lot to Irish families um, in, in the States especially uh, as well. He, he knew what it was like, uh, I, I should say, he knew why it was important to be there. It wasn't just about the tennis. It was about all the connections, making friends, making fans, and just really kind of pushing this this whole tennis thing and this specifically Irish tennis thing forward as well. Yeah, no, it's un unbelievable to hear. It, it's funny you mentioned the, the wristbands there because I was I was uh, one thing you mentioned on the commentary was was those wristbands yeah. and how how he promised you a, a pair. So did, did 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 you ever get your your Irish wristbands? No. I didn't, um, but I'm. You know what? I'm. I'm not. I'm not too mad about it. I. The the funny part about it is, Adam, he he, he did, but he was so proud of them. Like I, I I know so many of the players. They get they get hundreds, you know, thousands of wristbands over their career. So it, for them, it's disposable. Those weren't disposable for him. Like that meant something. Like we have a lot of, you know, here in the States, people who really say I'm defending the flag and everything, but you could tell that that meant something to him. It wasn't just a piece of clothing. He gave me, yeah. actually, he gave me some clothes and signed some clothes, a hat for him. Like he, he donated to the charity auction that I, uh, that I was running for a couple of years. Um, but no, he didn't give me those. And I understood why. And it's because it meant something to him. I think he cherished them and what it meant. So I never was upset about it. And I, I, I hope maybe someday I will get one. But yeah, he's he's always going to be a guy who um, I ran into him at the U.S. Open in 2019. So that was the last time I, I, I talked to him. And it was just, you know, chance meeting. He was walking around because he's doing um, he's working with a, a foundation in, in Las Vegas that helps um, give you know, kids in lower income areas the opportunity to be involved with tennis. And he happened to be there with some of those kids at the, the open in 2019. And, you know, we just had, we had a 45 minute conversation. Um, and, and, and he remembered all about my daughter and how old she was. And he, he was able to kind of talk about some of those, you know, random stories behind the scenes that you don't see, you know, you know, he could talk about Carrie, that's fine. But talking about some of the times, you know, we, we interacted in Tallahassee a couple of years prior to that. And that, that's just the human being that he was. He, he, he took pride in those interactions. He took pride in the wristbands and what the, the Irish flag wristband meant to him. Like he took pride in all of that. And that's what made him so special. Yeah, no. I mean, he's he's someone that I've uh, I'd love to to get to talk to at some point on on the podcast. Yeah, it sounds like you know amazing guy. He really is. He's I, I think in the media we always you know say oh what a guy what a great person like James is James is that he is that human being he is that human being who cares the fact that he hasn't decided to go into business or just be easy and go into some tennis job that's cushy and he would. You know, he could go make, I'm sure in Ireland, he could go make hundreds of thousands of dollars as a coach and just kind of, you know, poo-poo it and put in three hours of work and make a lot of money. But he's not. He's he's working for a nonprofit here in the States where his name, James McGee, doesn't mean a damn thing. He just cares about what he's doing and cares about how he can make an impact. Absolutely. Um, and just another player I'd like to, to touch, on, uh, touch on a bit is, is Dave O'Hare. Yeah. Who, who I know would have played a bit over there as well. Yeah. Um, when, I was, when I was doing a bit of my... 
I binge watching of, of some of some of the old <laughs> coverage. I was I was watching a bit of his his week in Dallas 2017, which I know was was one of his um several uh, challenger titles over yeah. there. Um and some of the wins he had that week, obviously on you know, with with, with Salisbury, who's gone on to obviously have, have some unbelievable success since yes. then. And some good you know, they had some great wins that week. But like how how do you remember remember Dave and his 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 time? Um it's funny, the first time I, I have a memory of of Dave was actually college tennis. Um, his, his, and I remember, I remind him about this all the time, uh, both him and Joe, actually, they played at Memphis, um, and their final team match was actually in Champaign where I was the public address announcer for, um, uh, the university of Illinois and Illinois should not have won that match against Memphis, even though they were the, the higher seeded team and all of that. But Memphis came in and kicked their ass the first like two hours, um, but before a, a couple of Illinois players ended up winning the, the team match. But I just remember how passionate and how hardworking the Memphis team was. And it was led by Joe and, and David. Um, so that was the first time I, I just, I didn't put it together until later when they started kind of making an impact. Um, what, what I'm reminded about their, their first challenger win was in Champaign in 2015. Again, my home. Um, they beat Austin Krychek and Nicholas Monroe. That's a really good win, a really great week. I remember he and um, and Joe specifically searching out Freddie Nielsen. Um, and Freddie, obviously, at the time was already a Wimbledon champion um, a couple years prior, um, was still trying to play, excuse me, as a singles player um, at the time, but obviously was an incredible doubles player as well. They they sought out Freddie because they knew that they could learn as you know a lot from a guy like that. And that that's the kind of thing that sticks out for me about those two guys specifically and I'm going to lump David in with Joe. They really wanted to improve. They just consistently knew that they were going to have to work a little bit harder. Again, a couple of guys who didn't necessarily have that really special thing. I think we've seen it a little bit more with Joe, right? I, I have some singles memories of Joe where I was just like, holy, I don't know if I can swear, but I, I remember him yeah. in Charlottesville uh, one of those years trying to qualify and playing, I think it was Michael Moe, and I just found myself like, holy shit, who is that? Like, who is that guy? Um, so there were, there were some unique moments with Joe, but David specifically, again, very tall. He's, you know, has the ability to serve, but he didn't have that bomb of a serve, right? And he just kept working so flipping hard. And you knew he was, again, the same thing with James, right? Just he was going to have to do a little bit extra. I think he and Joe worked really well together. I think also with Dave, he put himself in really good situations. Even after um, he and Joe split, he spent some time with Freddie and, and played with Freddie a little bit. Um, then he started playing with Luke Bambridge, who's gone on to a top 50 uh, career as well with three titles. He was really smart about who he partnered with. He was very intelligent about the game. He understood the idea of, um, you know, and this is getting into the weeds a little bit, but specifically angles when it comes to to doubles. He he got it. And it, it goes to show that he's already a guy who's very well respected as a coach. You know, after he retired a couple of years ago, he spent some time traveling with Joe and, and um, Rajiv, um, to kind of, I don't want to say coach them, but he was helping them on, on the road so that he was always feeding them and making sure they were working on the same angles so that he would understand them. Um, but, but Dave, I, again, just the work ethic was phenomenal. Um, and, and it shows that he's already, I, I, what is he now? 30, 28, something like that. I'd, I'd have to go back and look. He's 30. So he, he's already a guy, Mitchell Kruger's picked him up as a coach, and he knows that that's a guy who's just going to give him every, you know, every ounce of effort that he can as a coach. So I, I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I you, like look, at, you that, look at his yeah. partners. I mean, I, I actually, you know, as I was pulling up things this morning, like, so obviously Joe, right, who's, who's a Grand Slam champion. Frederick, Frederick Nielsen, he has, you know, four, four finals with Frederick Nielsen. Grand Slam champion, you know, uh, Luke Bambridge has three ATP top. David O'Hare knew exactly what he was doing when he found partners, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's obviously, it's not long since he stopped playing, but as, as you say, he has, you know, had so much success, you know, working with, with, with Salisbury and Ram and working with, with Kruger now, like he's, he's stayed in tennis and, you know, having success already in, in, in that side of it. I think David also knew he could be a guy. His so his career high was one seventeen 
um, and that was in 2017, he could have been a guy who maybe crept to 50, maybe, as a doubles player. Like, I, I think he was good. I, I don't mean to downplay his talent, right? He was good enough and smart enough and hardworking enough that he could have gotten to a respectable level as a doubles player, maybe top 50. He also knew that the amount of work it was going to take for him to do that was different than some of those other guys. And I think he knew it wasn't going to be that his body was having some troubles in terms of the pain. And I don't think he really wanted to invest that much of his body into it. And I completely respected it because I think he knew what it was going to take. And it was maybe that level that his body was not going to allow him. But he, if he would have stuck with it, I think he would have been a guy who's kind of like maybe those first couple of rounds of a grand slam year in year out and could have done that. Um, I think his quality of life, however, right now is a hell of a lot better. I also think he didn't really like, frankly, the, um, the doubles world is, is gross. It's, it's disgusting, you know, having to find partners from week to week and, you know, even some of the best people I know who are in the doubles world will tell you that they've had to turn their back on people at the drop of a hat because of, you know, trying to find the right partner for yourself. I don't think he really wanted to do that either. Um, and I, I completely understand that. It, it's, I think his quality of life right now is so, so much better than it would have been had he continued. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just just a, a kind of a nice, a nice segue onto onto touching on on James Kluski, who mm. who would have played with 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 Dave um, a, a few times yes. during their, their their careers. They won a futures together in October of mm. 2014. Yeah, then I know he's someone else that you you would have would have come in contact with a bit um, with your work. So uh, what, what what memories do you have of, of of James's highlights? Yeah, not as not as many. Um, James James ended pretty close to when I started. I think his last year. I think was 2014. I think he played a few tournaments. Um, and I, I, I pulled up his, his career here and he had a total of four challenger finals and they were all at the end of his career in 2013 and then 2014. Um, but I, I, it seemed to me that he, he was out there for four years specifically as a double specialist, his career high ended up being 145. And if your career high is at 145 after about four or five years of doing it, as a double specialist specifically, that's hard to make ends meet. Um, and I, I just found myself looking at it. And I mean, he played with some good players, Fabrice Martin, who, who ended up doing very well for himself, Parab Raja, who's a consistent, Michael Venus, a guy, again, guys who are consistently in that top 100 level. And I think it just got to that point where he realized he wasn't there. He was going to be stuck in this 100 to 150 range. And as a double specialist, you can't be financially viable there. So if you're stuck there for two or three years, you kind of know that the writing's on the wall, that you're just going to be losing money year after year. Um, But James was a very nice guy. Um, I didn't interact with him too much. He was a little bit more quiet and reserved um, than, I mean, like James and Dave are about as gregarious and talkative is, you know, like they're the stereotypical Irishmen in terms of their, you know, how social and outgoing they are. James was a little bit more reserved in that regard. Um, but yeah, he was, he was, he was a guy who worked really hard and I just don't think he had that next level to him. Yeah. To do some great things as well. Yeah. No, I mean like what he had a degree, I think it was from LSU. Um, so as a result, I mean, you're going to be able to make a lot more money uh, outside of tennis if you're if you're in that 100 to 150 range. The doubles player, you're making negative money. So yeah, I think it was a smart decision for him. Yeah, he's done really well. And, yeah. and just another another player to touch on is, is Sam Barry. Yeah, you, know, you would have would have seen a bit. And I know that his his um, his best tournament I think came in in Bangkok. So you obviously wouldn't have been working there. But I think the the, the best memory I have with him in the states was the end of the year, maybe 20. Well, I'm not sure exactly 20. Not sure the year exactly, but he was the end of the year, and he was he was near that cutoff for Aussie Open qualies the next year. And I remember he was in maybe a semi final, and if he'd you know kind of on the edge of of qualies. So like, how how do you remember remember Sam playing? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna try to pull that up. It would have been Columbus 2016. Um, he beat Taylor Fritz um, mm-hmm. in in that tournament. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. He had the the funny part about that is Columbus that year was actually a brand new tournament. Um, it was the week of Thanksgiving here in the States. And so uh, as a result, it was it seemed like it was only the players um, who who were like close to one of the cut lines <laughs> for the Australian Open that went and did it. Um, but yeah, he had he had good, good win over uh, Taylor Fritz in the quarterfinals that year um, when Taylor was 77 in the world. I, Sam was a guy I 
So I, I think my first interaction with him, it was um, Winnetka 2016. Um, and I'd, I'd heard the name, but he had always been a futures guy. Um, up until, you know, a regular futures guy up until 2016. And you mentioned that run in Bangkok, which was in May of that year, where he made it to the finals, um, falling to James Duckworth. I saw him in Winnetka, where he played Ryan Shane and then Peter Goyevchik. And I found myself thinking, why isn't this guy ranked higher? He was at 276 in the world at the time. Um, and I went and I obviously I did the prep and saw all of the futures titles that he had um, over the years. And then, like, I just, I never saw him again. Um, I, I'm looking over his tennis abstract career right now. He played with us in the States in 2016, and that's it. That tournament that I mentioned in Winnetka, he played in Binghamton the week after that. Then he played the, the four indoor tournaments in November of 2016. And as I'm looking through it, he never played in a USTA Pro Circuit event after that at the challenger level. And I never understood why, because I found myself at that Winnetka tournament, you know, specifically the match he had with Goyevchuk, I found myself thinking, this guy's strong. He seems to move pretty well. This is a guy who should be inside the top 200. Um, and I, I, because of the fact that he was off doing other things in different parts of the world, playing different tournaments, I, I never got to see him more to, to really understand why. I think for me as a commentator and for kind of a, People always ask me, like, what do you think about this particular player or whatever? You know, what's, what's their future? To me, I kind of need to see a body of work and, and like, see it up close and kind of see the practices. And that's another reason why I like to be at the challenger level because I can actually see the players who are putting in the time and putting in the effort on the practice court. And I, I never got that with Sam. Um, I interacted with him in those weeks because he was around James and Dave and, and uh, you know, those kind of players who I knew. And so... He seemed like a very friendly guy. Um, so then when I actually, I did, if I remember correctly, it would have been, what was his last tournament? 20, 2017, 2018. I think I even reached out to him and I said, so you're not, you're not playing anymore. And he's, I think he's in law school. If memory serves something, is that right, Adam? Do you know? Working in, in the aircraft leasing industry. Now. Okay. Yeah. So I, I felt like he, he just decided like he was ready to move on, just was kind of done with it. He'd, he traveled the world like his results if you look at them on tennis abstract he's been to everywhere playing futures right like he was grinding but he saw everything in the world right and i i just got the sense from him that he was just kind of over it and ready to move on to that next stage of his career yeah you know i was really great just to, to touch on i guess a few of the irish players and get those stories and perspectives that you know, are, are rare to find, you know, someone in your position um, who'd, who'd have them. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time as well, Mike. Um, yeah. I don't want to keep you much longer, but no. I just want to, uh, to to finish off asking, um, what, what's your favorite thing about tennis? My favorite thing about tennis? It, it is, it's honestly the interactions with these people. Um, I think that's, you know, kind of the theme of what we're talking about here, right? Like with, with James specifically, I, I think James is a, a great ambassador for what the sport should mean um you know we're everybody's going to remember roger and rafa and novak and serena and all of those players right we're always going to remember their talent the sport of tennis is such a social one the ability to go out with one friend or three friends or or whatever it might be to just go and you have those moments um when you're sitting on the benches in between games you know in a changeover and you're talking with your friends right and you know I, my playing career was not great but i have some of those same friends from from back then because we had those bus rides to to different venues and you know when we were playing doubles together and we just talked about our friends and you know talk to the opponents and all of that and that's the thing is like so many of these players now are going to be their their best friends when they're 50 are going to be these same players and that's what makes the sport of tennis so unique to me is just how close that bond is. Um, and I, I hope, I, I don't know what the scene is like where you are, Adam, and, and, um, but you know, here in the States, we're really trying to kind of push that community vibe a little bit more um, when it comes to tennis. And that's why it's so important to me is the ability to make those unique bonds. James was great with it. Um, and if I can say this, I don't know if any of uh, the Irish Federation uh, it, it listens to your podcast, Adam. I, I don't know uh, what your reach is, I, but uh, you know, 
you guys need some more tournaments. Like you need some more professional events. You guys have to get a challenger back. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I, as, as we were talking kind of over the last couple of weeks, you know, setting up this podcast, like I, I found myself thinking, why the hell do I only have really four players from Ireland who I've interacted with over the last several years? Like I've got a list of from Great Britain and obviously Wimbledon, you know, right? But so many of these smaller countries, they really need those challengers, one challenger to make sure that they have that opportunity at that level. Um, and it's so crucial. And I hope that Ireland, uh, I talked about this with South Africa, um, uh, with Lloyd Harris a couple of years ago, you have to get a couple of challengers in there to really boost the sport at that professional level. So you get more players who are able to get into some grand slams. And I hope that's the case for Ireland because you guys should, it seems like you should have a bigger, um, more vibrant tennis community at that higher level um, professionally, because frankly, those, those four players we've talked about have been so great for the game at, at a challenger level. It would be amazing to have somebody like James McGee, who's making an impact at that top 20 level and beyond. Absolutely. Um, you know, there was actually a, a challenger event like 10, 15 years ago. Right. There was, briefly, there was, there was one here. At the moment, we have one, um, kind of occasionally two futures in, in the summer, and, and that's about it. So yeah. it's, it's, it's it 100%. It's something that would be great, so great to see to see more of. Yeah, I, 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 I'm lucky enough to make some of these bonds. Like, I've, I, I know Darian King pretty well in Barbados, right? And that's obviously an even smaller country. But he, he, it takes something really special to be able to escape that when you don't have the ability to get wild cards into tournaments, right, Adam? I mean, like, one or two of those wild cards when you're ranked 400, you make one good run at a challenger, and then you're 260, 270, and you're able to get into more challengers. So to even have the ability to give two, three, four wild cards into a challenger in Dublin would make a yeah. huge impact for Irish tennis. So I, I hope that that's a, a priority at some point in the future for, for Irish tennis. Yeah, no, same. I mean, I agree. I, I hope that can be something down the line that we can be talking at some point. And we <laughs> Absolutely. Can be, we, we can be talking about the, 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 the event coming up and or talking about the event and stuff. So Adam, yeah, I, I'll say this. I, I've, I have one trip to, to Dublin and we, God, where, where else did we go? When I was, it was, I was 13. Okay. So I, I don't have the most memories of it because it was, you know, I'm now 84 years old, but, uh, I would, I would come over if there's a challenger, I would come over in a heartbeat. So some, let me, I'm, I'm sorry. Cause I know you've got things to do as well. Uh, we went over for a wedding. One of my mother's best friends is, is Irish. He was my soccer coach when I was, when I was younger as well, uh, Kieran. Um, and we went over for his wedding and, uh, another one of his Irish friends who my mom knew took us to the national hurling semifinals. Yeah. Yeah. So it was the semifinals. I was in love with that sport. Like I, I bought, I don't, I, apologies to all of your Irish friends who are listening. I don't, what, what's the name of the bat? Early. Yes. So I bought two of those. My, I had my mom buy two of those and like four of the balls and I brought them home with me. And obviously in the States, everybody's like, what the f are you doing here? But like I had the big, you know, the, I had them and I would play in my backyard with my parents because I was fascinated by it. And we didn't have YouTube or anything to be able to watch it. Every like once in a blue moon, they'd show the, the finals on ESPN2. I loved the sport. So I, if there's, there's absolutely a hundred percent chance of me coming, if there's a challenger so I can watch the challenger and maybe go to a hurling match because I was in love. That'll be brilliant. So a few years down the line, there's a challenger match. I'll, I'll see you there. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll, yeah. <laughs> Sounds brilliant. good. Brilliant. Good stuff, Mike. Mike, right. I'll, I will leave it there. Um, I really appreciate your time coming on. Um, it was great to talk. Um, so some of those, obviously, uh, some of the, the Irish insights um, and then also just the insights on on, on challenger challenger life and your experiences there it was, it was really great to get those so. no worries and i really appreciate your passion for the sport i think that's so important and uh the fact that you continue to do this this is uh truly amazing to have a podcast like this so i uh, your entrepreneurial spirit is is something to be really admired right thanks appreciate that big thanks once again to mike cation for his time really enjoyed talking to mike and I do hope that I'll uh, we'll get to to meet sometime at a, a challenger event in in Ireland. So that's something to to look forward to.
I will leave links in the description below to some of the matches we may have mentioned and some some matches that may be of interest. They are all still available online, so I'll leave some of the, the best ones you might like to see um, in the description below. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Irish Tennis Updates podcast. I hope you did enjoy it. If you did, um, I would encourage you to subscribe, to leave a rating, a review, and to share the podcast with anybody you think that might enjoy it. With that, that is all for this week. I've been Adam, your host, and I will see you next time. Goodbye.